that music can only mean one thing. I'm welcoming you to a segment we call uh, Eyewitness News. And this is where we take a look at some of the more iconic Hunter S. Thompson stories uh, with people who were there. And we have a good one for you. We're going to take you back to 1972. This is the Ed Muskie campaign and the, the story that, that eventually became part of Fear and Loathing Campaign Trail 72 has to do with uh, the candidate Ed Muskie and his Sunshine Express, which was a train that he used uh, in Florida to, to drum up support. And uh, he would sometimes do campaign stops and speak off the back of the train like the, uh, the old days. In, at that time of this story, uh, Muskie was the, considered the prohibitive front runner, the man from Maine, they called him. And because of that, he was garnering uh, international attention. Some of that attention came from the BBC, and that's where today's guest comes in for this segment. Ray Breslin, who might correct me in the pronunciation of his last name? Correct. <laughs> Breslin uh, was with the BBC in those days. And with that, Ray, uh, take us back, well, it's gee, nearly five decades now. Uh, good afternoon, or good evening. Uh, it's very simple. In, the, in those days, in 72, everything was shot on film. Video was only something in the studios. So there were only three networks uh, compared to now, and so there was never a crowd. A lot of still photographers, a lot of, written, uh, uh, a lot of journalists, obviously. And we were assigned, or I was assigned by my BBC correspondent uh, to follow Muskie on the trail because he was hot at that time. And we had taken the train, uh, to a few stops and we were interviewing or an interview was taking place at which we could see the back of the train where Muskie was shaking hands and doing whatever and but this uh, wasn't a one-off you had shot him before you'd been like to his home and oh that was in oh so you wanted me to go that far back no I'm just curious I mean, oh, we, not like you were oh, no, we went to his home all the time he lived in a cute little or I want to say a hamlet uh, on a, a lovely piece of property and I'll stand corrected, but I don't think he was married at that I time. I don't know. Uh, but it was a beautiful, uh, very um, Norman Rockwell uh, uh, pastoral situation. So it wasn't like you just showed up. You weren't like, oh, no, this no, was no, not we, spot news. He knew who you were and you no, had access. Uh, oh, no, we were, in those days, you could be on first name basis with the candidate, and no one got offended at all. And he was very close to uh, my correspondent, and I've got to be very honest, Michael Chapman. I just remembered his name, Michael Chapman. And they were on a first name basis, and there were only two people on the crew, myself and my Sam Cordis. And that, the networks, of course, were unions, so they had gobs of people all over the place, too many. And uh, AP, UPI, um, the American had U USIA were doing it for the government. They recorded everything. And there were other European networks were there, but they pulled, and we were pooling for the Germans, the Dutch, the French, and the Swedes, as I pulled through what they called the EBU. European so you were essentially the European camera. Yeah, yeah, we were, yeah. we were the European, we were, at that time, they wanted to do profiles on Muskie, and it was cheaper for the BBC to do it for them, and they somehow, we never got involved in that. There was a trade-off, they would cover things uh, which the BBC didn't have crews available, so they covered. So that's what that's what gets you on the train. So, so there you well, are with your camera. Well, we had we had followed him 
in Maine, frozen our butts off, excuse the expression, uh, I remember it very well in uh, February of um, 71, and we went to Salem, and we went to the wrong Salem, <laughs> because as being yeah, naive, yeah, naive Europeans, we had no idea there were two Salems within driving distance, and I just, I, 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 I joke, joke with you, until someone told us, it's the next state, and uh, so we, GPS in this of course, and Anne Watson, who was the coordinator for the BBC out of Rock Centre in New York, uh, uh, said we better dash. Anyway, we made it, worked out very nicely, etc. We followed him to Philadelphia, and then we picked up the train, and my memory, I think we picked him up somewhere about maybe Tampa or thereabouts, and with the train all the way through to Miami. And it was all very gentle. The crews were very polite. No one swore at each other. Everybody shared. It was very good. We get the other end where he's going to do a, a chat to the, uh, his hope, his, um, his constituents, hopefully. And he's there, and there are other people. His wife, no, excuse me, he was not married. His aide was there with him and other people. And I had not, I did not know at the time visually who Hunter Thompson was. I knew him, I'd heard of him by name. And he was there around, and we knew there was this fellow who was very disheveled. Uh, he uh, was known to in, imbibe, and I'll leave it at that, and he was taking other um, stimulants to make it work for him. And so we are doing a piece to camera, as it's called, where the correspondent brings you up to date on what's going on. And behind us is the train of which Muskie is talking to the truth. And all of a sudden, no, he's, the, the train is on like the caboose of the it's train? It's a caboose. Yeah, yeah, a caboose. Okay, yeah. Typical of the early days of Truman and sure. all these uh -huh. people. And we and right a frame, quite clearly, there are, there's people milling around, and all of a sudden we see a hand go up and grab the, uh, would be the left leg of Muskie, and literally yank him to the point where he topples off. And there's all the hubbub going on. So our correspondent moves out of the way. I just have to refocus and reframe. And see what was going on. Because you're thinking that's an attack. Yeah, but it happened very quickly and was over very quickly. <clears throat> Muskie was, to say the least, shaken. He had tried to grab one of his aides who were up there, but there was this barricade. And he actually went over the barricade of the, uh, the caboose, which wasn't particularly very tall. But in doing it, he had to come down with quite a thump and hit the ground. And he got up. And there was this milling around. There were a lot of still pictures taken. But I believe at the time, we had the only film of it actually happening. And I've never seen it released. It was, it was proprietary to the BBC in London. I do not know if they used it, but I have no doubts they did. And they would, they would have offered it to NBC, who at that time they had an agreement with to share. Um, I, I don't know, but I, I stand corrected. I'm not sure the networks would have got it, but they may have had it. Um, I, I, uh, Curtis, I'll go to you. Was it ever shown in the United States by the networks? I've, I've never seen it in one of the, you know. There were stills, there were stills of it when he had gone over the top. Yeah, I've seen, yeah, I've seen But I've never seen the motion picture, which is a 60 millimeter standard film at that time. And it was color, not black and white. It, that was when the transition from black and white to color was going over. And it was eventful. And you salted away in your memory of other things that go on on the campaign trail. 
uh, which some are interested in, some are mundane. And that's my recollection of Hunter Thompson. And he was as drunk as a skunk. And that's all you can say. I mean, truly drunk. And he was, other, and he was also wasted on his other um, imbibements, if that's a better word to use. Well, that, that, that's true. And, and how, how did you know it was Hunter? Well, we knew it was Hunter because someone mentioned it. In fact, Michael Top, the correspondent, knew who he was. Uh, he probably had more contact with him. We're crew, we're techies. We're, we're not correspondents where we would talk to the freelance journalists. Occasionally we would, but we were, we were lower status to them. You see, here's what's so interesting for, for Hunter Thompson followers. Wasn't him. The story that he has told and has never been rebutted until today, to my knowledge, was that he had loaned his uh, press credentials to a, uh, to really, a well-known prankster named Peter Sheridan. Uh, Peter had done some other things and actually ended up in uh, Washington, D.C., but that'll be another story for another day uh, with uh, where he became well-known. And mostly the stories you hear of Peter Sheridan in D.C. are told by your favorite bartenders. Uh, and he had loaned him his press credentials to go, to go north on the train so he could get a free train ride. And his version of the story is that he didn't know any of this had happened to the next day. So what's curious is, that's exactly the kind of story you'd make up <laughs> if do, you had actually done it. But do keep in mind, I did not know, or we did not know, what the real Thompson looked like, other than the person who was over there, masquer in this case, supposedly masquerading as him with false credentials. And I assume our correspondent who had not met him prior other than when we were on the train, assumed it was him. But Assuming it was him and not the uh, imposter. Sure, because, because he had his credentials. Why wouldn't yeah. you think it was him? Yeah. And, and that, that, that one of the beauties of that story is that in 1972, you could be famous-ish, yes. and people didn't know what you looked like. Well, interestingly, is our credentials in 72 did not have your photograph. It just had whom, for whom you were working and just your name, which is hurriedly written in by somebody with good calligraphy who could write your name. Only a year later were photographs attached. So in that case, it's just the name on a piece of paper without a, do a documentation of a pictorial. Just so it is. But, every, but, but everyone there, everyone in the press corps yeah. knew that was Hunter Thompson. I can't speak that for sure, but only my correspondent, because I was working for one man, not anybody else. Oh, and yeah, all the right. hubbub was over there by about maybe 10, 15 feet. And after Muskie got up, brushed himself off, and whatever, he disappeared, and it all, it all broke Look, up. I'm, I'm guessing security grabs him and takes him away, what right? What security? There was no security? Come on, the Secret Service in those days didn't do somebody in those days like Muskie. He, uh, even though he was running, they didn't do that. He may have had security. Uh, which may be local police, but we never really. We well, never that's really interesting because the uh, front runner now at that point, just a, a you know, a assumed nominee. Yeah. They all get they all get oh. secret service. Oh yeah, well, the last campaign I did, which was not that long ago, again they have them twenty four seven, and they rotate them every eight hours, and it's, <laughs> and it's expensive. Yeah, yeah, but in seventy two, Ed Muskie on his own yeah. at the back of the caboose. Oh. Well, it's no different than Jimmy Carter. When I did Jimmy Carter, he carried his own uh, luggage, his suitcase, and suit over his shoulder. And he went to the trunk. He had, he had uh, some Secret Service agents, who, by the way, were not particularly fond of him, but that's another story, 
But he always carried his own stuff. Yeah, yeah. had to defend himself against the swamp rabbits. <laughs> That's another story story for another day. Well, thank you. You've opened a can of worms. Now there's controversy. We must run it down uh, to find out if there's a part of me, and and I'd actually spoken with Hunter about this and um, exactly what he meant by uh, uh, when he met. uh, It's interesting that when he met Peter Sheridan, he, he used the name in quotations for about a year or two, and then he would write the story and he would not use quotations. So I think he, had, he adopted that as his actual name. But now you've raised the, 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 the question of the double switch. Well, let me ask a question then. What did Sheridan have to say about it after the fact? He's, uh, he has since passed. We can't find anything on record about this particular incident. And we will begin interviewing uh, Washington, D.C. bartenders, <laughs> the source of all decent information. On Any idea things. which bars he um, uh, frequented? Because I uh, lived in D.C. at that time, in Georgia. I think most of them, uh, I think Air Hawk Lee is going to be at the Prime Rib, 20, 2020 K Street, Prime yeah, Rib. There's the a shout did, out. I should be able to get the a Prime Rib didn't exist in 72. The um, bartender at the Prime Rib will be able to tell us the bars. Oh, sorry, okay. Yes, yes, yeah, because yes, yes. that's on K Street. Yeah. And then we begin the great investigative search. But uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you for throwing a, a, a new wrinkle into the old story. And then we will find out. And that, uh, and that is what the segment of Eyewitness News a is all about. An absolute pleasure. Thank you, sir. Well, the Southern gentleman hit the highway gave us stories we could share of crooked schemes, shattered dreams of people everywhere. Road of whiskey screams and motel rooms where no one seemed to care. Road of deep, dark, secret places made us feel that we were there.